Yes, hello, and welcome to Chapter 17 of the Dubious Book of Famous Deeds, the history podcast that looks at the world through the eyes of the Victorians, as told by a book from 1889 that I found in an alleyway entitled The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. I'm your host, Paul Bates, not a scholar, not a historian, just uh, just this guy, you know? Today, our chapter is entitled The Prince of Discoverers. It's about Sir Walter Raleigh, namesake of Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, a place I've never been. And you know who else has never been there? You guessed it, Walter Raleigh. Anyways, we're going to hear about all the places he never went to, all the things he did not do, or failed to do, or did but shouldn't have. And joining me for this is a very funny writer, actor, comedian, His work has appeared most recently on CBC's Run the Burbs. Please welcome Brandon Hackett. Uh, Brandon Hackett, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, fellow Agent Court Ian. That's right. Oh my God, (laughs) I forgot that we hail from the same neighborhood in Scarborough. Yeah. Now, did you go to ACI? No, I went to like a like a Christian elementary school. So it wasn't okay. in my neighborhood. And then I went to high school in North York when we moved to Pickering. Yeah. Pickering to North York. I mean, this geography will mean nothing <laughs> to anyone outside of the GTA, but yeah, that's a huge commute. It was. Yeah. I've, uh, I've never gone to school close to home and I've never gone to school in Pickering, even though I lived there for eight years. So uh, I've just, I guess, got so used to commuting. And then when I got to university, I got drunk on the freedom uh, the freedom that I had to just roll out of bed and go to class next door. Oh, uh, yeah. And it totally. ruined, my, <laughs> ruined my life. <laughs> All right. We're going to be learning about Sir Walter Raleigh, Ooh. the namesake of Raleigh, North Carolina. And Walter, South Carolina. <laughs> uh, bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm keeping it in. Um, here we go. Let's Let's get into it. The Prince of Discoverers. Mm, okay. I'm just thinking about the hierarchy of discoverers at this point. Yeah, right? Because who's the, like, king? Who's the queen? Who's the grand duke? Who's the vizier? The court jester of discoverers. (laughs) (laughs) The, like, earl of discoverers. It's like a burger family, but discoverers. Yes. Okay, here we go. Very little is known concerning the youth of Sir Walter Raleigh. He was born at a farm called Hayes, near the mouth of the River Otter in Devonshire in the year 1552. So this is the south of England they're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The River Otter, here's the one point of notoriety for the River Otter. It is the only known river in England to contain a wild breeding population of beavers. All right. That is a misleading. <laughs> Highly misleading. What a twist. What a twist from the river otters. It's like, what a bunch of disappointed families heading down to the river to check out the otters, only to find the yeah. only population of beavers in England. All right. Okay. It's a species which died out in Britain around 1550, around Sir Walter's birth, but mysteriously reappeared in 2013. Isn't that insane? Huh. So the beavers have been gone for like hundreds of years or something 500 years and then they're just back mysteriously 
Yeah, with a vengeance. (laughs) (laughs) Were they like a different, this is a weird question, and I'm sure the book does not have this, but maybe you have this off the top of your head. Were they a different breed of beaver? Well, I I don't know. I don't have that off the top of my head. (laughs) I don't think so. I think they would have said like, but how how does a species disappear for 500 years and then reemerge? And if it was a different species, how did those beavers get there? I mean, someone must have brought them. (laughs) <laughs> that's my that's my sophisticated scientific guess. <laughs> that could be it. Maybe. Uh, that's the best explanation I can think of, honestly. Because the other one was like little uh, embryos in amber uh, ha- hatching. And, uh, <laughs> like yeah, beaver eggs. Style. Yeah, yeah uh, that's right. <laughs> have you ever heard of carcinogenesis? No. So that is the uh, phenomenon in nature where over millions of years, a lot of different organisms just basically evolve into crabs. What? Yeah, it's been documented across a bunch of different species of sea wildlife that eventually just turn into different, form, different forms of crabs. So my question then is, uh, in the River Otter, is this a sort of thing where eventually all life there, specifically otters, I would imagine, just gradually evolve into beavers? Whatever the <laughs> word for beaver carcinogenesis would be? Well, I hope so. Either that or the beavers were like, bye, we're crabs now. And then for <laughs> hundreds of years, just stayed crabs. And yeah. then it was just like, surprise, we're back. We're yeah. <laughs> they de-evolved. <laughs> um, okay, so that's it. That's that's our, that's our podcast. Um, I think we covered it. Okay, so that's we've only just begun. Back to Walter Raleigh. In 1569, he began his military career in the civil wars of France as a volunteer in the Protestant cause. We're talking about the French Wars of Religion. Hmm. 1562 to 1598, a bloody series of conflicts which killed three million people. Raleigh was on the side of the Huguenots. Huguenots? Huguenots. Oh, I've just always called them Hugh, uh, Hugh <laughs> I know that that's not at all close to the French pronunciation, which would... Well, that's what I was going to do too. And then I was like, wait, how would they say it? Huguenot? I don't know. Anyways, they were French Protestants and um, France was a Catholic country. And I'm presuming that was the cause of the war. I don't understand the wars between Catholics and Protestants. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some nuance there that I'm missing, but um, Raleigh hated Catholics due to his Protestant family being persecuted by Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary. Mm. She was a Catholic queen and persecuted the Protestants, but then she stopped being queen and Elizabeth took over and Elizabeth was Protestant and reversed it. For his entire life, Raleigh hated Catholics and I think that's why he joined this war. He joined the Huguenots just to kill some Catholics. Interesting. Soon after, he repaired to the Netherlands and served as a volunteer against the Spaniards. So he's just on a European tour of killing Catholics now. Mm -hmm. But he was soon drawn from the war in Holland by a pursuit which had captivated his imagination from an early age, the prosecution of discovery in the New World. In conjunction with his half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, he made an unsuccessful attempt to establish a colony in North America. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Hey, at least he tried. Got a hustle. (laughs) That's right. You know, you can't expect to do it on your first try. (laughs) Returning home in 1579, he immediately entered the Queen's Army in Ireland and served with good esteem for personal courage and professional skill 
until the suppression of the rebellion in that country. So, Sir Walter Raleigh, Catholic hunter, in Ireland at the time, uh, the Irish were rebelling against the extension of English control of their land. Raleigh took part in the Siege of Smerwick in 1580, a three-day siege at the end of which the Catholics unconditionally surrendered. And after their surrender, Raleigh led the executions of anyone who wasn't an officer, more than 600 people in all. Hmm. So, I mean, it's a little, it's a bit of a downer. <laughs> no, it's pretty, that's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty intense. Now I know what uh, John Lennon meant when he said, uh, curse Sir Walter Raleigh, he was such a stupid get. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say that? Yeah, yeah. He says it in a song. Oh, man. Wow. I didn't know John Lennon dropped the hammer like that on Sir Walter Raleigh. <laughs> I mean, what's there even left to say? Uh, okay, so he kills a lot of Irish and suppresses the Irish rebellion. He owed his introduction to court and the personal favor of Elizabeth to a fortunate and well-improved accident, which is too familiar to need repetition here. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, I have about. no idea. <laughs> no idea. It's not familiar at all, unless... They mean the story of Walter Raleigh covering a puddle uh, with his cloak so that Queen Elizabeth could step over it comfortably. The trope that exists in about 500 Warner Brother cartoons. Yeah. You know that thing where someone puts their cape down on the puddle? That is yeah. said to have been Walter Raleigh doing that for Queen Elizabeth. He's the guy who, who, did, who made that trope? Apparently. He's the original chivalry man? Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's it. Yeah, wow. he's the paragon of chivalry. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, listen, good for him. <laughs> yes, good for him. That's a nice thing. It probably didn't happen. <laughs> it was actually some other Sir Walter, uh, a historical Sir Walter Raleigh, just a, an amalgam of different Sir Walters who <laughs> may or may not have done that. <laughs> some other guy rushed up and put his cloak over the puddle and Queen yes. Elizabeth had him clubbed and removed. Yes. But Queen Elizabeth did take notice of Walter Raleigh after his military success in Ireland. He was rewarded with 40,000 acres of Irish land. I have no mental uh, picture of what an acre looks like, you know? But it apparently equates to around 160 square kilometers, or roughly three times the size of the island of Manhattan. Huh. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of land. That's his estate now. So he arrived at her court. She kept him around because of his charms and good looks. She was in her late 40s at the time, and it was said that she was quite beguiled by him. There are contemporary documents attesting to just how good-looking Walter Raleigh was. <laughs> Wouldn't you love yeah. for there to be documents existing 500 years later <laughs> <laughs> offering evidence to your good looks? <laughs> I mean, and I, you know, I took a lot of like Middle English and uh, early modern English classes in university, and uh, now I understand every time he came up, how they, all those uh, things that I'd read would just be like, "Damn." Mm. <laughs> A lot of that. Um, but to answer your question, I would absolutely love that. Uh, but I would be livid if I was on the other end of that, where uh, there were historical records about how smitten I was with someone's beguiling looks. That would oh, freak the hell yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, that would suck. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> That's just so embarrassing. That's so. Rude. That is a tough line to walk. Among the cares and pleasures of a courtier's life, Raleigh preserved his zeal for American discovery. 
and with the assent of the queen in council, from whom he obtained letters granting to himself and his heirs property in such countries as he should discover, he fitted out two ships which sailed in April 1584. So he would make a deal with Elizabeth, and it was something along the lines of, whatever you find there, you get to keep... 20% of, send the rest back to us, and you gain the property, regardless of who actually might be living there at the time, and that property can be passed down to your heirs in perpetuity. Those will hold up in any court he arrives at. They'll be like, wait, this is our land. Uh-uh, look at this deal I signed with a woman you've never heard of. <laughs> and he sails out in April 1584. The first land which they made was an island named Okakoke running parallel to the coast of North Carolina. And by made, uh, they mean literally crashed into it. Yep. Uh, they, uh, they ran aground on what is now called Okracoke Island, North Carolina, and were forced to stop there for repairs. Hmm. They were well received by the natives and returned to England in the following autumn, highly pleased. Okay, here's my... Sorry to interject. <laughs> they were well, well received by the natives. <laughs> is that yeah. historical fact or is that just sort of one of those like um what do you call them lies <laughs> those big <Yeah>. lies <laughs> i mean yeah it really sounds like they were like oh come in please make yourselves at home sounds like the beatles or something beatles coming to america the first time oh that's right yeah raleigh mania is just running <laughs> wilds this book is really making it sound like uh walter raleigh actually went on this trip in fact, Raleigh never once set foot in North America. Huh. <laughs> yeah. He basically hired the ships, sent them on their way, and was just waiting for people to come back with riches and profits. Interesting. So what you're saying is he's kind of like the Elon Musk of his time. Gives a name to the Enterprise and gets all the glory. <laughs> Raleigh. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, he had given them instructions to go found the city of Raleigh on the American continent. Okay. <laughs> Don't come back until a city named Raleigh exists. Okay, here's what I would have done in this situation. If I were on that boat, I'd be like waving to Sir Walter Raleigh. I'd be like, great, don't worry, we're going to name a place after you. Then I'd, Once we were far enough away from England, I'd turn to my crew and be like, we're totally naming that place like like new Sodom or something <laughs> like just some cool name. Or, you know, if I, if I, if my current uh, consciousness inhabited a former consciousness uh, in history, I would simply turn around and not colonize another <laughs> land that belongs to indigenous peoples. Just go spend a nice time on an Island somewhere yeah. and then say, we couldn't find anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just hang out at the Isle of Wight or something. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So they meet the natives. Uh, according to this book, uh, the natives were, everyone was highly pleased. Everyone had a great time. Nor was less satisfaction felt by Raleigh or even by the queen who conferred on him the honor of knighthood. She also gave him a very lucrative mark of favor in the shape of a patent for licensing and the selling of wine throughout the kingdom. That's got to be lucrative for sure. Mm-hmm. He's like Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> After he did his like main stuff, just... Just get a license for liquor or whatever. Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, I'm um, I'm in town to promote a new wine. It comes in a crystal skull shaped after uh, the heads of the Irish uh, that you'll find on spikes back home. And 
She directed, we're talking about Elizabeth, she directed that the new country, in allusion to herself, should be called Virginia. Did you know that the state of Virginia is meant to be named after Elizabeth? Was that one of her names or something? Or First of all, it's said that Raleigh named the land Virginia in honor of Queen Elizabeth because she was the virgin queen. Okay. <laughs> Presumably it was meant as a compliment. <laughs> well, that's another weird thing that scrutinizes her, like, sexuality. Her virginity is commemorated in a state uh, that votes constantly against its own self-interest. <laughs> but if I was king and I was a virgin and somebody came back and said, hey, great news. <laughs> we found a new continent and we've named it Virginia. I'm like, why? Because you're a virgin. I'm like, could we just not, could we please just keep that? Like, you don't have to call it that. Welcome to King Paul's Virgin Island. <laughs> Can we think of a single other name? Something, something else you know about me that I'm known for? No, it's you're a virgin. That's what everybody says. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Bucktooth Peninsula. <laughs> like, I'm really sensitive about that. Okay, so Raleigh did not quit the court to take charge in person of his undertaking. He didn't go to North America. And those to whom he entrusted the difficult task of directing the infant colony appear to have been unequal to their office. It is not necessary to pursue the history of an enterprise which proved unsuccessful and in which Sir Walter personally bore no share. So what they're saying is it's another failed colony. Yeah. Kind of funny that in one breath they're saying his colony was such a success he was knighted for it. And then the next paragraph they're saying it's not his fault it fucked up. They were total failures, his colonies in North America. The first one was abandoned due to lack of supplies. And Raleigh's second colony on Roanoke Island in what is now North Carolina simply disappeared. What? Ha ha, what indeed. What a cool cliffhanger. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll learn more about this crazy disappearance along with Walter Raleigh's tragic fate, a fate which, if I'm being honest, was entirely avoidable. That and more after this. We're back. Hey, if you like the podcast, it would be great if you gave it a rating online and leave me a review as well and let me know what you think of it. Thank you in advance. So, we left off with the strange disappearance of the Roanoke colony. Let's get back into this mystery which has captured your imagination with Brandon Hackett. And Raleigh's second colony on Roanoke Island simply disappeared. What? Yeah. Around 120 men and women were left on the island to, you know, form their camp. Yeah. When one of Raleigh's men went back to bring the supplies, they had vanished without a trace, leaving behind only the word Croatoan cryptically carved into a fence. Oh my God, that's so creepy. Yeah. Uh, it's believed that the colonists may have assimilated into the local indigenous tribes, but nobody knows for sure. That makes a lot of sense. If you've been sure. left behind by... Sir Walter Raleigh, to form <laughs> a city in his name, and it 
cold and shitty and you don't know how to find food for yourself, yeah, you're definitely going to join up with the people who thrive on that land, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Croatoan, do we know we know what that means? Yes, we do. The word Croatoan was believed to refer to the nearby Croatoan Island and was presumably a clue as to where they went. They must have stayed up for nights trying to decipher that clue. <laughs> okay, all right. And did they bother going or was it just... No, they did not. <laughs> Raleigh had no interest or intention in finding his lost colonists because his deal with Queen Elizabeth specified that he needed to create an English colony in North America within seven years in exchange for one-fifth of any and all gold and silver he find there. But if he failed to within seven years, that deal was null and void. He would lose his claim if he couldn't sustain a colony. But if the colonists couldn't be proven dead, he could still keep his claim. So he just didn't look for them. Wow, okay. So he's just like, I'm sure they're alive. Can I have my claim still? Yeah, <laughs> they're there. <laughs> they're fine. I received a letter with uh, withdrawings of how things are going. Here, uh, take a look. Soon after these events, Raleigh retired to his Irish property, three times the size of Manhattan, being driven from court in consequence of a private marriage contracted with Elizabeth Throgmorton, one of the queen's maids of honor, a lady of beauty and accomplishments, also the greatest last name in English history. I was going to say, like, it's cool that they're saying a woman of beauty and importance because the trope in comedy for a long time is to, like, the, na- the name does not telegraph somebody who's like a, an uncommon beauty. <laughs> it's just sort of like Throgmorton. <laughs> sounds like somebody who's just sort of like, L.I.? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, more Elizabeth Throgmorton. <laughs> Where's the Throgmortons in Bridgerton? <laughs> and they should be the hottest family. <laughs> that being said, good for them. Good for them. This like, is all true. Uh, a lady in waiting to the queen, uh, Elizabeth or Bess Throgmorton, and Raleigh had a secret hmm. romance, secret marriage, and secret child all behind the back of Queen Elizabeth. I mean,. That's the title, Lady in Waiting. Lies in wait. That's it. In consequence of this intrigue, Sir Walter Raleigh was committed to the Tower, the Tower of London. Oh, boy. He succeeded in appeasing his indignant mistress so far as to procure his release. But though she requited his services, she still forbade his appearance at court. In fact, Raleigh was released so that he could manage... Another campaign against the Spanish. He was released from the tower. His wife was released a few months later. Queen Elizabeth had expected the Raleighs to ask for a pardon, but they refused to. So he fell out of her favor for five years. Elizabeth's jealousy on the subject of her favorite's marriages is well known. And her anger was lasting in proportion to the value which she set on the incense of Raleigh's flattery. He retired on his disgrace to his estate. But during this period of seclusion, he again turned his thoughts to his favorite subject of American adventure and laid the scheme of his first expedition to Guiana 
in search of the celebrated El Dorado, the fabled seat of inexhaustible wealth. Hmm. El Dorado, Raleigh having heard the myth of the lost city of gold from a captured Spanish general, organized an expedition to find it in an effort to win his way back into Elizabeth's court. Having fitted out a considerable fleet, Raleigh sailed from Plymouth, February 6th, 1595. He left his ships in the mouth of the river Orinoco and sailed 400 miles into the interior in boats. It is to be recorded to his honor that he treated the Indians with great kindness, which, contrasted with the savage conduct of the Spaniards, raised a friendly feeling towards him that for years his return was eagerly expected and at length was hailed with delight. They love this guy. They just sit around wondering when he'll be back. Yeah. His relationship is exaggerated in this book, but apparently they had peaceful relations since they were able to show that they were enemies of the Spanish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whilst plundering their resources, I guess. Oh, yeah. But the setting in of the rainy season rendered it necessary to return without having reached the promised land of wealth. It's interesting that this book doesn't really weigh in as, as to whether or not this is a mythical city. It's not a mm. it's not a real place. They just it's just a rumor. It is so funny to me that he was searching for El Dorado. That is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like he like bottomed out in life and then was like, where's Atlantis? <laughs> like, that's so funny yeah. to me. Which way are we sailing? Down. We're finding Atlantis. <laughs> That'll solve uh, my problems. I know. What a Hail Mary. Uh, this continued through life to be his favorite scheme, but neither Elizabeth nor her successor could be induced to view it in the same favorable light. So Raleigh really went on this trip. Though he never went to North America, he did go to Guiana and tried to find uh, El Dorado. Of course he didn't find it because it doesn't exist. He didn't return with anything of value. No silver, no gold, no city. Everyone was disappointed, and his reputation was even worse than it was when he left. So he had no other choice but to write a book about it. <laughs> he wrote, it was a really long title, but the, the short version is The Discovery of Guiana. <laughs> <laughs> he basically wrote his own story the way he wished it had happened. He blew everything out of proportion and exaggerated his findings and accomplishments. And that book was a hit. Everyone loved it. So okay. his reputation actually improved upon the publication of that book. And that is what inflated the myth of El Dorado for generations to come. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Good for him. I, I mean, like, if I just had a bunch of failures, if I pissed off the person who had a crush on me so much that she locked me in a tower and my family that I had, yeah. if I went to go find a mythical city and came back with nothing, I do not know if I would have the mental, emotional, or physical energy to rebrand <laughs> i think i just cut my losses and and live on my forty thousand acres of land in ireland yeah but good for him from this time to the death of the queen raleigh enjoyed an uninterrupted course of favor elizabeth was now old sir robert cecil the Secretary of State secretly labored to prejudice her successor against him, and in this he succeeded. We're talking about Sir Robert Cecil, the first Earl of Salisbury, 
As Secretary of State, Cecil was able to successfully promote James I as successor to England, while Raleigh preferred Lady Arbella Stewart. I don't know who that was, but they Mm. each had their pick of who they wanted to succeed Queen Elizabeth, presumably because they would be in good standing with whoever they promoted. Yeah. Very soon after the ascension of James I, Raleigh's post of Captain of the Guard was taken from him, and his patent of wines was revoked. No! (gasps) No! My wines! (laughs) My crystal skulls! (laughs) To complete his ruin, it was contrived to involve him in a charge of treason. Wow. Yeah, Raleigh, in 1603, was implicated in a plot to overthrow James I and replace him with Lady Stuart. This book goes out of its way to make it sound like he was framed for treason. But the prevailing view of historians is that Raleigh did participate in this plot to overthrow the monarchy. He was brought to trial November 17, 1603. The sentence of death, thus unfairly and disgracefully obtained, was not immediately carried into execution. James was not satisfied, that's the king, with the evidence adduced on the trial. And so Raleigh was reprieved and remanded back to the tower, where the next 12 years of his life were spent in confinement. So he's back in the Tower of London now. What does he do while he's there? He writes poetry, a history of the world. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's cool. Good for him. Fortunately, he gets back out. Raleigh was released from the tower in March 1615 and obtained permission to follow up his long-cherished scheme of establishing a colony in Guyana and working a gold mine. No. So he makes it out of the tower, and the first thing he does is get back on that boat and back to Guyana to try and find that city of gold. Whose favor did he curry to do that again? After two stays in a tower. (laughs) He must have been a fantastic salesman if he's able to convince the king, because this is the only reason that he was let out, is it's like, listen, I know El Dorado's out there. I can get you this gold. (laughs) Right. And the king agrees and says, all right, take what you need. Don't fuck with the Spanish. The terms on which this license was granted are remarkable. He was not pardoned, but merely let loose. The necessary funds were provided out of the wreck of Raleigh's fortune, and by those private adventurers who were willing to risk something in reliance on his experience and judgment. His experience is, so far, failure after failure, like the worst resume in history. Yeah. The results of this disastrous voyage must be shortly given. (laughs) Raleigh sailed March 28, 1617 and reached the coast of Guyana in November following. Being himself disabled by sickness from proceeding farther, he dispatched a party to the mine under the command of Captain Chemis. We're talking about Lawrence Chemis, seaman and close friend of Walter Raleigh. But during the interval which had elapsed since Raleigh's first discovery of that country, the Spaniards had extended their settlements into it, had built a town called Santa Tome in the immediate neighborhood of the mine in question. James, with his usual duplicity, while he authorized the expedition, revealed every particular connected with it to the Spanish ambassador. The English, therefore, were expected in the Orinoco. So according to this book, it's a setup. The king has let him go and has told the Spanish king where to find them. That's, huh. I don't think that actually happened, but it's, it's a great way to tell this story. 
Yeah, I'm trying to wonder about like the sequence of events because how would word have been able to spread there? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, that's incredibly. That's a great postal service. You've got to get. <laughs> you've got to get letters from England to Spain, and yeah. then you've got to get letters to Guyana faster than the ships uh, that Raleigh's yeah. on are, are already moving. Chemus and his men were unexpectedly attacked by the garrison at Santa Tome, and a sharp contest ensued in which the English gained the advantage and burnt the town. In this action, Raleigh's eldest son was killed. Oh, no. Most historians say that it was Chemus's men that attacked the Spanish, not the other way around. They weren't ambushed or besieged. They just ran into the Spanish and started a conflict, and then they burnt down their outpost. But Raleigh's son did die in the conflict. Chemus abandoned the Enterprise and returned to the ships. By abandoned the Enterprise... They mean he abandoned his mortal coil. He returned to Raleigh to deliver the bad news about his son and beg forgiveness. And then when Raleigh told Chemus that he could not forgive him, understandable, Chemus said, I know then, sir, what course to take. He left Raleigh's tent, took out a pistol, and shot himself in the chest. And when that somehow failed to kill him, he used a knife to stab himself in the heart. (laughs) What? <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but this is the second time I've read from this book in which a guy failed suicide and had to kill himself with two different weapons. <laughs> Why don't you just shoot himself in the head, like in the mouth or something? That's the quickest way. That you wish I wish you were there because that that's <laughs> anybody probably could have figured that out, but no, not him. He's like a shot in the chest. <laughs> that was the end of Lawrence Chemus. On his return to England, Raleigh found himself marked out for a victim to appease the resentment of the Spanish court. The Spanish found out, of course, what happened, and the Spanish ambassador was outraged and demanded that Raleigh pay for his crimes, and James had little choice but to uh, go along with it. Raleigh quietly surrendered himself, and he was arrested and committed to close custody in the tower. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Back in the tower. <laughs> Back to the tower. Right. <laughs> they must have just kept a standing room for him just the way he likes it. It was determined to carry into effect the sentence passed 15 years before from which he had never been legally released. So they're going to kill him now. The execution with indecent haste was ordered to take place on the following morning. In the last stage of his life, his greatness of mind shone with even more than its usual luster, calm and fearless without bravado. He spoke at considerable length, and his dying words have been faithfully reported. He laid his head on the block, and, breathing a short private prayer, gave the signal to the executioner. Not being immediately obeyed, he partially raised his head and said, "'What dost thou fear?' Strike, man! And underwent the fatal blow without shrinking or alteration of position. He died in his 66th year. Hmm. There you go. Wow. (laughs) What a life. That, uh, yeah, I was going to ask how old he was because it sounded like he lived so many different lives. Mm Mm-hmm. And 66 sounds pretty old for someone who lived during that time. 
Yeah, that is a healthy age to grow to for the 1500s, for sure. Especially yeah. if you've been on trips across the Atlantic, most of which failed. If you've yeah. made it to Guyana, if you've been sick on a boat, and if you've had a death sentence hanging over your head for a rebellion against the king. I mean, he was like like 12 years of his life, and he was 66, so 12 years yeah. of that was in in the Tower of London. It's probably more than 12 years because I think he was in in the Tower for like a year or so the first time for marrying Elizabeth Throgmorton. That's yeah. pretty wild. That is nuts. And yet, you know, when I hear that story, I think that guy sounds like the Prince of Discoverers. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of like interesting thing about European explorers to, to the New World is I feel like every single story I hear, it's about them being failures <laughs> um, in some sort of a grand way, and yet they're still like Christopher Columbus, notably. Oh, a complete <laughs> fuck up! A complete fuck up! Yeah. Absolutely, so stupid. <laughs> Just a con man and a psychopath. <laughs> That's all he was. Comparing that, you know, thinking about Sir Walter Raleigh now, he just sounds like a like a like you know someone fighting for kind of the wrong cause, who then you know commissioned expeditions and then like went on some expeditions uh, and ultimately came up with nothing like you know like yeah just failed so much and and he's got raleigh north carolina named after him what exactly made him great <laughs> popularized el dorado what can we say yeah that's right yeah i mean <laughs> he had hustle we, we wouldn't have all those great text-based adventure computer games about the search for el dorado <laughs> without walter raleigh <laughs> we wouldn't have that uh, uncharacteristically homoerotic children's movie, Road to El Dorado, <laughs> with, <laughs> without Sir Walter Raleigh. <laughs> Thank you, Walter Raleigh. You can find Brandon on Twitter at Brandon Hackett and on Instagram at Brandon R. Hackett. Now, that is our episode for this week. My thanks again to Brandon for joining me. If you like the show, give it a rating, a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the show on Twitter at Famous Deeds or on Instagram at Famous.Deeds. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BaitsBot9000. Check out the SonarNetwork.com where you can find not only a dubious book of Famous Deeds t-shirt, but a whole ton of other cool, interesting, and funny podcasts. If you want to support the work I do researching and recording this podcast, you can check out buymeacoffee.com slash famous.deeds. You don't need to sign up. It's just a quick and easy way to support creators all over the internet. Next episode is all about guns, particularly about one of the original gun nuts and one of the men responsible for making the USA the most weaponized country on earth. Samuel Colt, inventor of the Colt pistol, is our topic next week. Until then, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. 